STEMI, the Stanford Emergency Medicine Innovation Podcast, where we explore the future of innovation within and around the field of emergency medicine. I'm Dr. Dan Imler, entrepreneur and faculty physician with Stanford University Department of Emergency Medicine. Each week, I sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with individuals pushing the boundaries of technology, research, education, systems, and design within emergency medicine. From the front lines of healthcare entrepreneurship to breakthroughs in the lab, we explore innovations in the science, practice, and art of creating precision emergency medicine that can transform healthcare for all. To stay current on the latest innovations and tips, please be sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also send us your thoughts and questions to respond to in future episodes. And now, let's get started. Today, I'm here with Dr. Pat Pasu, who is the CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, co-founder of Doctor on Demand, former White House fellow, radiologist. It seems like this list keeps going on and on. What are you like 150 years old? Like, uh, how have you, what have you been doing with your life? How have you got all this stuff done in this short period of time? I, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm 150 years old. Well, uh, no, it's, it's great to meet you. I appreciate it. I... Um, you know, I'm really, first of all, I just want to say, I think what you're doing here is fantastic. When I was um, sort of training and going through my career, you know, you, you didn't have as much of that uh, distinct path ahead of you. You sort of had to forge it on your own. So I love the fact that you are um, giving people various examples of, you know, sort of a a career path that um, at one point used to be considered perhaps uh, non-traditional or maybe a little a little weird even, but but now I think is much more common. Um, you know, a couple of unifying themes for me, and and I have to admit, it always sounds a little bit more uh, formal and and thought through when you look back than than forward. But um, you know, certainly a everything I've done as disparate as they may be from kind of entrepreneurial to policy to running large organizations has a underlying current to making a better healthcare system. And, uh, and, and also really draws on a central um, skill set in your, in, in my training as a, as a physician and, and really the intersection of those different disciplines, I think teach you to, um, to, to find solutions that are, interdisciplinary in nature where you can learn from one experience and, and port it to something else. So certainly I think we can get into some of those details, but I think as an overview, um, that's some of the things that can string together what would otherwise seem like uh, a multi-personality disorder uh, career. <laughs> well, let's dig into that. So you're the CEO, and I mean, you have an MBA in your background, but why do you think it makes sense to have someone who's a physician be a CEO of a healthcare organization like yours? Yeah, frank, frankly, I think in healthcare, the, the it's interesting that you ask that question because it almost seems society has has almost trained to think of physicians as non CEOs, and I, I've thought about that a lot, and I I think it's actually a testament to the profession of medicine. Society does genuinely have a tremendous respect for doctors. But most people think that lightning can't strike twice. So if you're a really good doctor, really good you know, radiologist, surgeon, uh, internist, society looks at you as, as having such depth, such focused expertise that how on earth 
could you be able to lead people and manage budgets and uh, stir innovation and, and the like, right? So, so I don't think it's a knock, but I think it's, it's unorthodox um, to think of physicians in that category. But I would actually almost flip the question and say, I absolutely think in, in American healthcare, healthcare CEOs should definitely have a, a backdrop in, in healthcare expertise and, and physicians, I think, you know, have the ability to make great, um, great CEOs. So I think as one's career goes forward, especially as a CEO, you need to be able to understand what people are going through. You need to understand the ins and outs of um, the, the, the care delivery system, the healthcare organization. Physicians, even though we're not traditionally trained that way, we interact with every piece of healthcare. And so with the right training, with the right augmentative skill sets and experience, I think physicians can make great CEOs. Now, that shouldn't be taken as every doctor without specific training, <laughs> you know, is probably ready to do that. And in fact, in certain organizations, um, certain healthcare uh, departments, and, and even though I love academic medical centers, sometimes academic medical centers, sometimes they've promoted leaders based on criteria that sometimes don't make chief executives. But I think if you start with the protoplasm of a doctor and the experience of a doctor and you add leadership skills, you add management experience, you add financial acumen and, and a variety of other skills, you actually can, can make a, a, great, um, a great CEO. And it's not that distinct from saying that, you know, technology company CEOs, it's nice if they've at some point understood technology or, you know, energy company CEOs understand energy. So, so it really shouldn't be as much of a stretch as, as the, the natural question is. But, but I think one of my personal goals is to see more healthcare entrepreneurs have, have MDs, more healthcare CEOs, uh, you know, have MDs, uh, more healthcare policy experts have MDs. I think it'll be great for what we're trying to solve. Um, not just to make doctors CEOs, that's not the point, but to really get powerful solutions. So let me go even deeper into there. So I've seen, at least in the people that I've seen come through, I've seen a lot of people who go and get their MD, don't do residency or either do residency, but then never truly go practice as an attending. Now you went and truly practiced. How important do you think that is um, to actually have been out there practicing as an attending physician in terms of what you brought in your special kind of skills to your career? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's important. And for me, I, I, I love to do a lot of mentoring and, and discussing career pathways. I always try and remind people that I am only, you know, a sample size of one. And if you look at some sort of hill too often, people think there's only one pathway, whereas there are, there are many pathways. So, so I should use that as a disclaimer, but for me, Oftentimes I tell people I could not do any of the things that I do without having gotten an MBA. But for me, that's a, that's a, you know, a postscript to the fact that none of this is possible without being a physician and in particular a real practicing physician. I mentioned at the beginning of your introduction that one of the tenets that ties my career together is a belief in interdisciplinary skills. And I sometimes say that society and civilization has advanced so much in a good way 
that we've picked the low hanging fruit off the tree. So if you're going to solve complex problems, you can't just be an engineer or a doctor or uh, you know a business person. You need to be able to put a bunch of those solutions together. And and what being an attending physician or a practicing physician allows for you at the very lowest level, it gives you sort of a common bond, a common vernacular. A level up from there, it certainly gives you a level of credibility. You know, when you're talking about complex solutions or, or managing uh, managing people, but ultimately and most importantly, it just allows you to help think through the grand challenges that you're trying to solve. I mean, there's so many times in my business career and my policy career where the ultimate solution wasn't tied to a economic issue or an operational throughput issue. It was, I know this answer because, because <laughs> I'm a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now my ability to articulate it or, or turn down a solution might draw on those other skills, but, but definitely at the core being a, you know, being a doctor was key and being a doctor does entail, you know, some level of, of practice. I think most would, would agree even for, for the current generation. I think especially for the current generation where these different pathways become more common. Um, you, I tell people don't be a needle in the stack of needles. And so, you know, now you want to be able to separate yourself and, and have, uh, have a truly hybrid skill set. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the beginning of, of your career. Was this a conscious decision that you went in the direction that you did? That, tell me when you kind of went from the standard path of I'm going to undergrad, I'm going to med school, I'm, go, I'm going to be an attending versus you kind of trailing off into the direction that you went. Sure. So I, I will tell you, you know, medicine for me was always, I had a, a mentor who used to say, uh, the humanity is always fulfilling and the science is always interesting. And it is, um, it's true. So, so medicine as a profession had always been appealing to me for, for those aspects. But I always loved the, you know, it wasn't only medicine. It was medicine and other things. I was an engineer in, in undergrad. We, uh, you and I were talking, uh, I was an engineering major at the, uh, the University of Illinois. Going to go a lot in there. Um, but, um, it was one of those things where engineering, I I probably couldn't make the plane faster anymore or the car safer using calculus, but it taught me a few things. Always have a lens towards optimization and always have a lens towards systems level thinking that no matter how many, how good the people are in a bad system, you'll get a bad outcome and you can have average human capital in a good system and you'll still get a a good output. So as I thought about going into medicine because of humanity and, and, and the science being interesting, as I got into that world, I always knew I wanted to, to sort of make a macro level difference and we can talk about kind of what that means. But immediately what I saw was a broken system. And, and to me it was, if I'm going to effectuate change and create a bigger impact, I, I want to do so in pathways that allow it to occur at a macro level for a million people or 10 million people. And in order to do so, I need to garner the skill sets that are required to do that. The, the understanding of business, the understanding of operations, the understanding of information technology. So 
So it was, I would say, not a premeditated destination specifically that I'd be doing what I do now. But generally, if you would have asked me, you know, 25 years ago, um, you know, the idea of using health, you know, of helping improve healthcare on a gigantic macro level was always something that, that was passionate to me. Okay. Tell me about that moment when you started to break into it. Was it entrepreneur that, entrepreneurship that did it? Was it deciding to go into the management or what, what was it that kind of was the beginning of that career for you? Yeah. So I, I was, you know, the, the beginning of that career for me was truly being a, a first year medical student where you start to get clinical exposure and, and looking at this broken system. And I had, I had had some exposure just because of interest at looking at skyrocketing costs and bad quality and other things that I'd read about. But, but, but I had that academic foundation. And then I would say, well, geez, no wonder there's all these medical errors. I'm, I'm writing a drug dose on a sheet of paper, sticking into a tube, sending it down the hospital, and, and we're surprised that there's medication errors. Um, you know, no wonder that the, the costs are skyrocketing. Uh, neither me as a med student, nor my resident, nor my attending uh, really knew the costs of any of the things that we were prescribing, you know, at the end of those pens. And, and I'll tell you an, an interesting story. There was a uh, a physician mentor of mine, a, a different one. This was a, a pediatrician and then an administrator. And they were both mentors to me. And I was going into a meeting where the pediatrician said, um, hey, you know, I think you'll find this meeting interesting, but just, and he used the administrator's name, which I, I won't say here. He's a great guy, but you'll notice he just doesn't know anything about medicine. And go through this hour-long meeting on the way out. This administrator, who who had been one of the kind of uh, people who you know I'd gotten to know and and sh shared this interest in, in health policy, puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, you, "I know Doctor Blank is one of your mentors. He's a great doctor, but you can tell he doesn't know the first thing about business or <laughs> administration." Right? Nice. And, and, and therein started to show me that there was this great disconnect in healthcare. And at a high level, if I was going to try and solve these larger challenges at a health system level, um, that I would need those skill sets. And, and eventually, there's a quote by Sun Tzu, opportunities multiply as they are seized. I, I didn't really know about private equity and venture capital. I didn't really know, I didn't know what a White House fellow was. Um, so all of those things ended up being uh, opportunities that, that multiplied later. But the foundational element was, as I mentioned before, to, to really help uh, bring to bear um, the, the improvement in, in making a better American healthcare system. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that time at the White House. Now, you got selected if I think there was like only 13 a year that are White House fellows. Tell me a little bit about that getting selected as that and what that actually what, what that experience was. Yeah, well, I've got to say a couple things just briefly about Stanford because um, Stanford was such an amazing inflection point in my career for a couple of reasons. Other institutions, and it's, it's sad to say this, but other institutions really want to just churn out widgets. They, they, they really want you to just pour your head down in the sand and, and focus on just grinding kind of the, the factory work. Stanford 
looks at the world, encourages you to look at the world and, and fashion. You have to be an amazing patient centric, you know, quality focused doctor without a doubt. But in addition to that, it, it fosters other, other interests and professional aspects of that. Number one. So it, it, it celebrates, it celebrates multidisciplinary, um, you know, sort of performance. It celebrates excellence. It says, you know what, we, we don't necessarily care what you do. We want you to be world-class in it. And, um, and, and frankly, it's just a, it was an eye opener. So I had not heard of the white house fellowship prior to my time at Stanford. And, um, and within uh, a couple of years of being at Stanford, I said, wow, you know, there's a physician I got to know who had gotten to a certain point in the process and a, and a venture capitalist that, that I'd been doing some work with in Silicon Valley who had uh, applied to be a White House fellow. And so, so I, I heard about it, a couple, you know, a couple of years before I became a White House fellow. And when I started to look into it, it, it captivated me. Um, and it still does. President Lyndon B. Johnson having this, this notion that true then in the 1960s, true now, is how was it that in the 17, late 1700s, we had, we had these really phenomenal leaders, people dedicated to a country, dedicated to society, um, irrespective of where they came from, they had this common cause. And even though the population had, you know, whatever, 10x or 20x, where, where do we get leaders who can, irrespective of where they come from, irrespective of what they do, just really be focused on, on the, the grand challenges in society? So, so it captivated me. And as I looked into it, I noticed that there were not a lot of physicians throughout its history. There were a lot of, um, you know, just military heroes on their way to becoming military generals. So yeah. General Colin Powell, General Wesley Clark, uh, you know, the list goes on. There were business uh, superstars on their way to becoming CEOs. There were uh, people from some element of government on their way to becoming, you know, serving as, as senators or, or, or congressmen or governors, et cetera. But there, there really weren't that many physicians. And for me, at, at that given time, given the interdisciplinary background, it was right in the throes of a class that I had been teaching at Stanford on health policy and health uh, and health economics. And I said, I, I think I've got something to contribute. By the way, there's this big discussion going around around the Affordable Care Act and, and all these things. And it, it was just kind of perfect timing to be able to serve my country in a, in a real visionary purpose that what was at a high level at a time where I felt that I could add skill sets from a, a healthcare perspective while also learning the experience of, you know, working at the white house at the highest levels. So the, the timing was perfect. It was life changing for me uh, personally and professionally. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful for Stanford for having, you know, put me on that path. Tell, tell me a little bit, what did you do on a day-to-day -day basis when you're a white house fellow? So it is one of those just incredible experiences that I divide into, into a few categories. Um, the, the first is you are appointed at a, uh, at a sub cabinet level. So very, very senior. So if you think of, you know, goes president, uh, secretary level, cabinet level, and then that's your appointment. So, so very 
um, you know, high level uh, work and it gives you, so you have a, what I would call a vertical day job. And for me, I was there in, in 2010. And so a lot of my work focused on um, economic uh, agenda items and healthcare agenda items. The healthcare part is kind of obvious given my background. The economic part is, as you recall, those were the throes of the, the Great Recession. Yeah. And so there's a joke about, uh, you know, the White House being like a little league soccer game or American government being a little, little league soccer game. Everybody, you know, everybody chases the ball, right? Yep. And you can imagine you want to be where the action is. And at that time, a lot was on the economic uh, recovery. And so my vertical role, um, you know, focused on certain things like how do you help American healthcare companies recover economically? That could be hospitals, that could be, you know, companies that are trying to sell American healthcare equipment uh, to other countries from an export perspective. Um, it could be helping streamline, I put that in kind of quotes, um, things that at FDA or CMS to allow, uh, you know, a more economically friendly, um, you know, sort of environment. So that was the vertical job. The horizontal job was um, was phenomenal. R really, an ability to uh, just be a part of that senior team, and that was amazing for me. I mean, you're being brought into rooms, conversations, decisions around uh, you know the military wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, trade policy, uh, uh, you know, alternative energy policy. J just you know, being a, a senior team member who can. Uh, contribute, listen, participate, and, and help. And then the third policy, or the third kind of um, area of a White House fellow is um, the the White House fellowship is trying to take mid mid career people and have them contribute value to to the United States government and society at a time when they otherwise were probably too far advanced in their careers to want to just kind of you know pick up and just go work with the government, right? Yep. Um, but at the same time, it is also trying to say that, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we want you to go out and make a bigger impact on American society. And so we want to give you skills. So you literally have this ability two or three times a week to have lunch with or have dinner with kind of anybody. And, and not many people refuse an invite to the White House. So, um, so you know, you'll have lunch with former, um, you know, presidents or, you know, government officials or business CEOs. And the purpose is to, to see if there's insights that you can apply to government right now. But the dual purpose is to basically give you the skill set, the experiences that, again, five, ten years from now, you can draw on. Um, to, to make an impact. And I, I draw on those experiences all the time, all three, the vertical job, the, the horizontal experiences, and even some of those kind of deeper um, experiences that, that have taught me a lot. I can imagine having a network of former presidents is not a bad thing to, to have in your back pocket. Um, let me switch gears uh, real quick because I really want to get to hearing a little bit about the, the founding story around Doctor in Demand. Um, and I'd love to hear where that came from in your kind of career path, like how that came about, like what, what happened there? Sure. So, so when I was leaving Washington, I really 
<clears throat> had been thinking about a, a few different things. Again, it's a hierarchical goal of trying to enact macro level change on not just healthcare at this point, but, but the White House really had changed it to healthcare, education, economics, just, you, you know, trying to, to make a huge impact on, on American society for, you know, being a positive force for good. And I thought about three different tracks, return kind of more to medicine, come back to, you know, the place that I love Stanford and, and focus, you know, on, on medicine as the number one thing policy in terms of staying um, in the Obama administration and in government or engaging in a, um, in more of the, the business end. And some of my friends and some of my mentors had said, Pat, you, you've had these roles, but you have, um, you, you've been more of an advisor. The ball wasn't necessarily in your hands. Um, you weren't an operator. And, and some of the advice that I have for people is if you're gonna choose a path similar to mine in, in business or policy, be an operator. If you're a doctor, I liken it to the equivalent of being on call. It's the first time when you are alone, where you have to make the decision, make the call on your own. That's what it is like to be an operator. And I, I didn't know that then. I didn't understand what people were sort of encouraging me to do. So I, I went to go lead a merger of these two uh, uh, public organizations. And as a radiologist, a lot of what, well, all of what they did mainly was, was radiology, but some of it was traditional radiology, but they did something pretty cool in the telehealth uh, space. And, um, and primarily that was in radiology and talking about how your experiences all blend together. It turns out that I got a couple of simultaneous calls. I got a call from a, a couple of the venture capital firms that I had done work with as a doctor at Stanford. And they said, um, you know, Hey, there's, there's somebody, you know, we, we want you to meet. And the, the true idea generators of Dr. On Demand is actually Dr. Phil and his son. Uh, so like Dr. the Dr. Phil. Yeah, that Dr. Phil McGraw and his son, Jay McGraw. And they put, we got put in touch together, and I was running this large company that did radiology telehealth. And I would always get called, as I'm sure you do, by friends and family saying, hey, I've got a sore throat, I've got a rash, can you take a look at this? And so when, when they connected me um, with, uh, when I got connected eventually with, uh, with Dr. Phil and his, and his son, um, it, was, it was just a great match because the idea made sense, my experience as a doctor, uh, as an engineer, as somebody already in telehealth made sense. And it's kind of one of those cool stories that goes back to what you asked me before. I never predicted helping start, you know, Dr. On Demand, you know, 10 years ago. But when you look back, you say, geez, it's almost like you had the, the exact right experience to, to kind of make something like that happen. So pretty cool how all that came together. I, um, I found myself in, uh, in Dr. Phil's office um, talking this idea through. And a couple of months later, was moving back out to California uh, to help start Doctor on Demand, and it was a huge leap of faith. As I, it's something that your listeners might find interesting. I traditionally, from a professional perspective, had been kind of more risk averse, right? Sometimes the medical profession teaches you that way, and oftentimes it's a good thing, right? Doctors need to have a certain risk, uh, you know, profile in, in their decision making. 
Um, you're also on sometimes this preordained path in medicine. You know, you go from med school to internship to residency, et cetera. So this was this, and, and you're used to some really good brand names, you know, as, as a friend joke, they were like, boy, Pat, you know, you're going from Stanford to the White House, you know, not exactly taking a risk here. So here I was going to start a, a new company that nobody had ever heard of in a new space. I'm not going to lie. It was like looking over the edge of a cliff from a professional perspective. It was the most uh, sort of professionally terrified I'd ever been was to leave this large, safe organization that I'm leading to go. It was like, you know, there's this line in Top Gun where he's like, you're going to do what? You know, I, I had friends and family members like, you're going to do what? You're going to move, you're going to risk this, this entire pathway that you've built on your career to go start a company from scratch. And, uh, you know, even if it had not turned out to be successful and, and amazing, I, I still think that taking those calculated, intelligent risks where you can make an impact in society is um, is a path worth taking, and I'm, I'm glad that, that I did. So what pushed you over the edge in this case to say, I'm going for it? What do you think it was? I, I have to, I, I'd love to say, honestly, that it was this deep, bold vision on my part to, to say, um, hey, there's this chance to, to really impact things, and, and that was there, but Honestly, it was conversations like the one you and I are having right now. I talked to a bunch of friends and most people in med, well, maybe I'll just rewind for, for two seconds. When I got appointed as a White House fellow and, and the people I'm about to talk about are near and dear to me, the assistant professors, the clinical instructors love them, but they were like, wait a second, Pat, there's no way you're not going to leave this trajectory you're on at Stanford to go work at the White House, you've got to be crazy. They were like, stay here. You're on this great, you know, great path. But it was people like President Hennessy, people like Provost Echemendi, people like my chairman, Dr. Glazer, and, and a whole host of amazing other people who had, had a wider birth that said the exact opposite. Pat, you'd be a fool to not go be a White House fellow. Similarly with, with Doctor On Demand, you know, when I talk to people traditionally in medicine, and again, I, I, these are wonderful friends of mine, they were like, how, you know, why would you do that? You're, <laughs> you know, you're going to risk everything. But it was other friends in, in business and technology and others, um, even just good friends who said, Pat, you'd be a fool not to do this. You know, you're, you're in your 30s, you've got this great track record, if you fall flat on your face, and it doesn't work, and it, and it fails, you can always go back and do what you're doing. But they gave me the courage to, to take that risk, and, and I, I hope that I can give some of your listeners that same courage to, to get out there and do it. Yeah, it's kind of nice to have those type of people that are there for you, that you know that even if you go fail, they're not going to think of you as a failure. They're the ones who say, hey, this is a risk worth taking no matter what the outcome is. Absolutely right. And, and even furthermore, I had um, I, I'd been introduced to the world of um, executive search firms. I had friends and professionals who said, you know, Pat, um, even if you failed, people actually want to see that. It's, it's valuable. If you are going to continue to one day become the leader that we're hoping that you will be, 
um, having failures is important for you. And I, looking back now, you know, whatever, uh, eight, nine years ago, at, you know, as a CEO, as somebody who's led you know, large organizations, it's true. You know, I, you absolutely do learn from your failures as much, if not more so, than your successes. And nobody wants to sign up and say, I'm going to intentionally fail, but it's impossible not to fail. And, you know, our joint profession, we're so used to selecting doctors and, and almost in search of perfection, right? They've got these amazing MCAT scores and grade point averages, and they've, they've saved lives and invent and cured, you know, diseases by the time they're 18, right? And that's what we've bred. Whereas entrepreneurship and, and business encourages you to say, you know what? Talk about your failures, share your failures, because that's who makes you who you are. One of my favorite quotes is, our, our greatest glory uh, in life comes not from never falling, but rising every time we fall. And even though it's metaphorical to life, it is, I think it's true of your, um, you know, the practice of leadership and the practice of um, of, of any job that you have is, is doing that. So, so I hope that some of your listeners kind of, you know, heed that advice, particularly because medicine tries to just kind of squeeze that out unintentionally, I think. So now you've moved on into this, um, managerial role, this operating role of a huge organization that's impacting tons of people's lives. Um, from that vantage point, I'd love to get your perspective on a couple different things. So through your time going, you know, being at, at the very beginning of the Accountable Care Act and seeing all that go through and your history of working in policy and teaching it, um, we've been hearing about this kind of movement for value-based care for a long period of time. And I keep it, it, people keep telling me that this future is, you know, it's, it's next year, it's next year, it's next year. I'd love to hear where your perspective is on this journey where we're moving, um, especially given where you sit now um, and how it's going to impact people all the way from oncology patients all the way down to emergency physicians. A absolutely. You know, I, I sometimes uh, talk about this concept I call healthcare 1.0 and healthcare 2.0. Healthcare 1.0 is the traditional delivery of medicine, fee for service within the four walls, it's medicine as we've known it for 60 years, 70 years. Healthcare 2.0 draws on these things like, you know, telehealth and technology, value-based care, big data, some of these terms that sound like jargony terms and buzzword terms. And, um, and in many cases, you know, I remember in, in uh, you know, a decade ago, I was speaking and I was cracking a joke saying uh, something like value-based care, accountable care, you know, it's the unicorn. Everybody's heard of it, but nobody's actually seen it. But, um, you know, to paraphrase, uh, and I don't want to misattribute the quote, I think, you know, Bill Gates or some others, you know, said that, you know, you, you underestimate, um, you know, the, the pace of change it, it, to, to start kind of a disruption, but then you also underestimate how quickly the change comes after that tipping point. Yep. And, um, and it's true. You know, I think in, in value-based care, the, the, the joke is on me and everyone else who cracked that joke 10 years ago, because what I did at Optum and what I saw in my time at the White House is that value-based care is very real, defined as the number of um, payments that are tied to some component of quality, some component of service or patient satisfaction, some component of, of outcomes. Um, the journey is slow, but but no question about it. I think you know from Medicare's perspective, 
uh, in 2020, uh, half of payments will have some component tied to, um, to outcomes and quality. Private insurers are doing the same thing. Now, right now, it's, it's little bite sizes. But if you look at something like Medicare Advantage, where a lot of those contracts now have more and more tied to performance and quality, I absolutely think if it, if it took us 10 years to get to this tipping point, in, in five years from now, you're going to see a heck of a lot more value-based care. We're seeing it in, in oncology and in cancer, um, where I absolutely think that patients deserve, Americans deserve, providers deserve uh, to be incentivized and rewarded, not just on the volume of services, but on do you make people better um, and, and do you take care of people? I, I liken the analogy to, you know, other professions where somebody just charges you a bill, whether it's a, you know, a lawyer or a plumber or a, any service industry, you don't want to just pay $200 and then, you know, a week later, <laughs> everything's broken. Um, I, I think the idea that good doctors and good providers offering great service and great quality um, should be um, rewarded. It's the right thing for physicians. It's the right thing for patients. And and I'm confident uh, we're headed down that path in a, in a pretty fast way. So your organization is a provider of services. Can you give me like some an example of kind of how the contracts that you have, maybe your Medicare Advantage contracts, have changed how you're delivering that care to those patients? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, our organization, um, obviously focuses on it's, it's, it's oncology, it's cancer. So we focus on uh, mortality, morbidity, I always say adding not only years to life, but life to years. Um, and we also focus, so it, you know, we've always been focused on improving outcomes, on improving patient satisfaction, um, especially in cancer. If, if the patient is not, cancer is a battle of the body as much as it is a battle of the mind. And so satisfaction and patient journey matters because you need that patient to not quit, you know, during month one and month two. So some of our value-based contracts are where we um, are rewarded for um, patient satisfaction, for patient uh, outcomes during the year, and for keeping the entire, the, what's known as the TCC, the total cost of care, down. And so, um, yeah, we, we have agreements that reflect that, and we're going to have even more in the years to come to do that. Great. Maybe that other unicorn that I keep hearing about, and I'd love to hear what you guys are doing as well, is around precision medicine. So I know, obviously, oncology care is a huge place where that plays a role. I'd love to hear what you, where you see that in this kind of trajectory of truly impacting care. Yeah, precision medicine is is already having a monster impact on what we what what happens, and on, I think in this case, oncology is at the tip of the spear. Precision medicine and and personalized medicine. Um, one analogy that I make is when when you and I were training in medicine, you know, th there were ten types of cancer, right? Your organ based cancer, right? Your breast cancer, your lung cancer, your liver cancer, you know, so on. Now there's ten thousand different types of cancer based on the, the, the genomic uh, profile, based on the, you know, the, the gene level therapy. And we actually get a lot of patients who come to us who had what I would call the correct textbook therapy. If they had breast cancer, they did the right 
therapy or a reasonable therapy, if you will, for breast cancer. What they did not do was treat the underlying mutation and understand the evidence respect to that mutation. And so one thing I love about our organization is we do a lot of clinical trials. And although I respect the academy and academic medicine greatly, and it's obviously you know where I came from and where I still love to teach, but here we only do this clinically to impact outcomes. We're not doing precision medicine or genomic testing you know, for, for an academic paper, we're doing it because, you know, Jane Smith, we're looking for the best care for her mutation that's causing her cancer. And, and I can, I can literally picture dozens of patients whose care that I, that I've spoken to personally, whose care we changed after, you know, running a precision medicine profile on them. So, and frankly, I think even though we're, we're leaders in this space, I, I really think we're at the, the, the frontier's edge. I think the next decade is going to be amazing. And, you know, I, I think it's actually going to truly unlock us to be able to come close to curing cancer in the decade ahead. Can you um, kind of merge those two things, the value-based care and the precision medicine? Are those things antithesis of each other? Are they synergistic to each other? How do you feel like those two views of how medicines deployed come together? I think they're super synergistic. You know, the, the old joke on value-based care used to be value to whom, you know, if it's value to the patient, it's value to the society, our society that's paying for it. And if you think about the, the three tenets of value-based care to me would be delivering higher quality, higher service at a lower total cost, right? that equation of what you get on the top for what you pay on the bottom is value. Precision medicine allows you to do that because it gets you a higher quality treatment pathway. It gets you less waste. By that, I mean less false starts by, you know, sadly, I've seen a number of patients who were started off on something, turns out that, that wasn't working. Well, if we can start them off on the right thing, less suffering for them, greater quality for them and satisfaction and less wasted dollars. So I think actually precision medicine is a great aspect of value-based care where sometimes I think people get a little mixed up is the unit price in value-based care versus the total cost of care. Take a doctor who might charge $100 for a visit versus a doctor who charges 110. Well, unit price would tell you, well, you obviously just go to the doctor who charges you a hundred total cost of care would tell you, well, even if this doctor charges you $10 more, if you look at his outcomes, less ER visits, less waste, let, you know, his total cost of care might be $5,000 for the year versus the doctor charging a hundred might have been 10,000 precision medicine is kind of the same way, even though some of the aspects of precision medicine are expensive and we as a society need to continue to bend the cost curve on those if ultimately you're preventing $100,000 of six-month wasted therapy on a patient, then it's a slam dunk, right? So, so they, they are synergistic. Great. Well, I think your vision of the future is one I can get on board with. Um, thanks so much for talking with me, Pat. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for having me on the show. Thanks for what you're doing and a uh, uh, real pleasure. Have a great day. This interview is intended to explore the process of innovation and does not in any way indicate endorsement by Stanford or by our physicians of companies or products being featured.